Function Room 41 Revolts. Some of the stories behind the massive sums of an energy revolution. My guest is David Roberts, an energy journalist and writer of the Volts newsletter and host of the Volts podcast. This is the inadvertent second of what looks to be an energy trilogy, or an elegy, or trinergy. He has been writing and talking about the challenges, but also the incredibly cool stuff happening in the biggest equation the world has ever seen. How to make all that energy that used to come from burning into making it from electrons. We talk about magic cement, stone batteries, why the changing of the energy system of an entire planet sounds like a crazy idea, but it just might work. My name is David Roberts, and uh, I'm, a, I guess, a clean energy journalist now going on going on 20 years. I used to write for various publications, but I, uh, three years ago, started my own newsletter uh, and podcast called Volts, where I just am digging in to the clean energy transition and uh, exploring various corners of it. And I'm sure this has never happened in the history of humanity where one podcast host interviews another podcast host <laughs> about their podcast. And both of us probably fall extremely neatly into peak podcasting demographic. <laughs> this is very <laughs> but, podcasty. Yeah, but I have no problem with that because uh, I like your podcast, which is, for me, it's a tour of, obviously, of things I don't know or questions I hadn't thought to ask uh, I'm always fascinated with energy and uh, regular listeners to this podcast will know I touch on it from time to time when I had a hydrogen episode last week and hopefully talking to somebody about modeling soon. But I think energy is endlessly fascinating. And the questions you ask and, and that have to be asked about how do we move, live, heat, fight, eat, <laughs> defend, uh, dig, build, knock down. They're so fundamental that, and what I like about your podcast is you ask this very basic question, like what's the story with solar or what's the story with <laughs> geothermal in Iceland? So I thought what we might do in this is just across a few of the those big questions, get a glimpse into things that I didn't know I didn't know. <laughs> sure. Sounds good? <laughs> sure. Um, so the first thing was uh, like the grid and uh, the electricity grid. So you're obviously coming at it from the US perspective, an enormous grid. And I, I have a very loose understanding of an electricity grid. <laughs> but in one recent episode, you're just asking about the wires, the fundamentals of it. And, and can they be better, like regardless of where the energy comes from or how we use it? We rarely think about how it gets passed around, those electrons. Yeah, so I guess this is how I would start. You know, I'll go, I'll go big and then hone in on the little picture. Big picture, we have to get off fossil fuels. I think people know that. They get that by now. And so that is, in and of itself, a giant puzzle, basically. And that's what my podcast is about is pieces of that puzzle. So when you think, you know, we have to get off podcasts, well, then you're like, well, how do we get around, right? How do we, uh, you know, toast our bread? How do we, there's just a million different sub puzzles in that bigger puzzle. And that's sort of what my pod is exploring. But what we have discovered over the last 10 to 15 years of people beating their heads on this problem of decarbonizing, of getting off fossil fuels is that the main 
tool, the main direction, the main job here is electrification because we need a lot of energy and the only way we know of to make energy at scale, at a really large scale, a scale that's comparable to the scale of our current usage is through um, renewable electricity, renewable energy, wind and solar, basically, and geothermal and, 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 and hydro and nuclear. You could throw some others around the edges, but wind and solar are going to be the bulk of it. So, and, and we didn't, that wasn't obvious at first, right? I could go back to the early 2000s and the 2010s. There's a lot of efforts people might recall to find sort of um, low carbon liquid fuels. You know, there's a huge, yeah. there, was a, there was a pursuit of biofuels for, for, for ages and ages. People kept thinking, you know, cellulosic biofuels, biofuels from this source, that source. None of that really panned out in a way that could scale up. The only thing we've ever found that could scale up to civilization size is renewable energy. So, and just that, to cut in that, there, sorry, yeah. sorry, David. Um, just to cut in, hopefully not to interrupt your train of thought, but scale is probably the reason why I'm, I'm, I have you on because of the questions you ask about scale. Did they find had had they not done the extrapolation to work out that it wouldn't scale? Is there is there a lot of wishful thinking goes on in this where they, nobody wants well. to find out that the answer <laughs> is actually you're out by a factor of 100 in terms well, of the amount of energy there were always there were always a lot of skeptics there's always a lot of skeptics there were always a lot of skeptics around biofuels there's always a lot of skeptics around any of this because any of it is a big job and there were and there were people who thought if we could crack this or that scientific puzzle we could make biofuels easier or you know there were there were glimmers there were reasons to hope but we but we looked into it and it didn't pan out so yeah. so now we're so now it's electrification. And so everything, almost everything I do on my podcast is derived from that electrification, which means two things. One is you have to decarbonize electricity supply, right? So right now, most electricity, most places comes from coal or gas. Uh, and we have to switch all of that over to low carbon sources. That's one. And then the second broad <laughs> challenge is we have to take everything that we used to do with liquid fossil fuel combustion, like, for instance, driving a car, and we have to move that onto electricity. So we have to clean up electricity, and then we have to move everything else onto electricity. That is decarbonization at the broadest level. It's electrification. We have to um, clean up the grid and then get everything on the grid. We have to get driving around. We have to get cars and trucks electrified onto the grid. We have to get heating and cooling of our homes, all those furnaces, et cetera, that burn fossil fuels. We got to get all that onto the grid. So that's the big challenge. And that raises a bunch of other challenges. One of which is, well, we have a grid that was built a long time ago and is already a little rickety (laughs) and we're basically going to if we electrify everything like we need to to decarbonize like our targets say like all our models say we want to do that means we need probably two to three times the amount of electricity production that we now have that means we need about two to three x the grid and that in itself is a huge 
problem. <laughs> one of the problems, uh, there are many, one of the problems there is it's real difficult to build new electricity lines. Turns out it's real difficult to build new power lines because for a lot of reasons, bureaucratic reasons, NIMBY reasons, everybody who is located along yeah. the, the course of the power line can object and slow the project down and sue and stop the project. And utilities, power utilities have all sorts of perverse incentives. A lot of times they don't want to connect up their area with some other area with a power line, because even though that would reduce the cost of power and clean up the power, it would make the electricity the utility less money. So lots of times they like being islands, constrained islands. So yeah. you're working against utilities, a lot of sub problems. But so one of the things a lot of people are looking into is how could we get more throughput from the existing electricity grid without having to build a bunch of new towers, a bunch of new poles. And so the pod you're referring to is um, people are just working on better power lines. Real, real simple. Like the, the, yeah. the way power lines are made now, they've roughly been the same since the early 1900s. Like the latest sort of big innovation was, I think, in the 1970s. Um, so so there's a company, uh, I had um, the CEO on my podcast, who just makes power lines that replace the steel in the core with carbon fiber. And that gets you, um, it's much lighter. Uh, it sags less. Like a big problem with power lines is when they get hot, they sag and they and then they brush up against trees, start fires, that all that kind of nonsense. And, and, and because of sag, you have to build the towers a certain height, et cetera. So if you have power lines that have better throughput, they leak less, right? They lose less energy over, over time. They sag less, et cetera. And here's the key. They are similar enough to current power lines that they can work on current power line infrastructure. So you can keep yeah. the same towers, just strip the lines out, put new, better lines in, and then voila, you're getting two to three X more capacity for the same, out of the same infrastructure and that's what that guy's all about and so i had yeah. him on the pod and then i had a woman named amelia who, who's done a study of this it's called reconductoring the conductor is what they call the line and reconductoring is just replacing lines with new lines and she did a national study on reconductoring like how could we you know what's the big picture how much could we get out of this if we reconductored everywhere we could and she discovered you can almost you can get almost tw twice the capacity out of the current grid that we're getting without these new, without these fights of siting yeah. and permitting new power lines and new towers. So it's uh, anything that can be anything that can get more out of the grid without running into a bunch of fights with NIMBYs is, is like gold. So this is a big, a big, a, a big deal in the power world. Just, you know, we just upgrade all our power lines we, we're going to tackle a huge amount of the problem. And then that will give us more capacity. And what happens is right now, the main thing holding back building more renewable energy is not price. It's super cheap. It's not land, although land is an issue in some places. Mostly it's just getting hooked up to the grid. Like the grid is so overburdened and congested in so many places that people apply 
for a hookup, for a connection to the grid. And, and they end up waiting years, like four, five, six, seven years. And right now there's, I think the latest, the latest estimates I saw it is there's something like two terawatts of energy waiting to hook wow. up to the grid. That's more than is currently on the grid. So there's just a huge backlog now of clean projects that want to connect to the grid, but there's not enough grid capacity to let them on. So anything that can increase the capacity of the current grid is going to allow tons more renewables to hook up. It's a testimony to the the joy of maintenance, isn't it? <laughs> like <laughs> yeah. the inno- innovation in maintenance yeah, yeah, it's than innovation. not super sexy, not super yeah. sexy. And utilities, yeah. you know, like I like I said in my post, like utilities, most most businesses, you would think if they were selling a product for a century, like over time they would improve that product. That's what yeah. market pressure is supposed to do. But the thing is, power utilities don't feel any market pressure. They're monopolies, right? They're they're regulated monopolies. So, so they don't feel much pressure to upgrade their products. So even getting them to use, like here you got a CEO coming to them saying, look, it weighs the same. It works the same. You don't even have to retrain your workers. Just restring these where you've already got towers and you get 2x the grid capacity—it's like a—it's like a a win-win. It's a—it's a, it's a no-brainer, and it's like pulling fingernails trying to persuade yeah. utilities just to do that. And and it—I mean, something a revelation like that does make you look around, particularly in in where we consider—I mean, it's probably a temptation in countries which are wealthy and have what they would see as their systems in place that systems that exist are seen as, well, they're fine, they work, and well, they're not any, broken. Any but- system creates incumbents, right? It's yeah. just a, that's just a, a fact of life. So any system you create is going to create entities that are have a vested interest in preserving the system as it is. And that is one of the big problems <laughs> facing. Because yeah. if we're going to do what we say we're going to do as fast as we say we're going to do it, all, all the systems are going to have to change relatively quickly. Moving into another area where you, you look at something that is, we take it so much for granted and and possibly, A, didn't, for example, I didn't realize in terms of carbon, how car- carbony it is, and also that any other way of doing it is possible. I was fascinated in with the episode on cement and how cement is made, because I read earlier somewhere where you had talked about one of the reasons why you're in the newsletter and podcasting game is the freedom to get a bit nerdy from time to time <laughs> without fear chemical equation and proud of it uh, and so i i enjoyed listening to you find out about <laughs> all, all all those symbols and things on the left hand side of the of the cement equation and those on the right hand side but first of all like it it just struck me wow like Cement is really primitive at the moment, isn't it? We just burn a load of rock. <laughs> we down we to dust. we make cement basically the same way we've made it for again centuries. Like this is a centuries old um, uh, stuff going on here. Yeah, I mean, one of the reasons I like my my job is just because you poke into anything really, no matter how familiar it is and how ubiquitous it is. You poke into it a little bit, you're like, oh, this is like way more interesting than I thought. Yeah. There's a lot more going on here than I thought. So. You know, I said electrification is the main thing, right? So right now we can see a path 
a pretty clear path to electrifying most stuff. Like we know how to clean up the electricity supply. We know how to electrify transportation. We know how to transfer, we know how to electrify heating and cooling, but there are, there are a few remainders (laughs) that it's not obvious yet how to electrify them or how to decarbonize them. They they call these difficult to decarbonize sectors. And so you think things like aviation, that's still a puzzle. Heavy shipping is still a little bit of a puzzle. And one of the puzzles that's kind of left over are, are this family of high temperature industrial processes. So um, for one thing, um, it's not um, it's not been clear, although I think we're going to overcome this. You know, you need really high temperatures for some of these things, for things like steel or, or things like this. You need like 1400 C furnace that's running almost around the clock. And that's just a a lot of electricity. <laughs> so, so it, it's tricky getting that out of electricity. And then there's some process. It, it almost feels in the case of cement that you should be burning something. It needs fire. Uh, a lot of, a lot of industrial processes need high heat. That's a, that's, that is one of the key sort of riddles here is how to get high heat. And we can talk about there are there are solutions coming online that are going to enable renewable energy to do that too. But, and we can talk about those later, but cement is a unique and interesting problem because in most industrial processes, the fossil fuel, the, the carbon emissions just come from burning fossil fuels in these furnaces to get this high heat. And that we can sort of figure out how to replace, but that's only half the emissions from cement. The other half is an actual chemical reaction that takes place. You're trying to get lime out of limestone, basically, to 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 drastically simplify it. And that requires just burning it at extremely high temperatures that breaks it apart. And you get lime on one hand and you get a bunch of CO2 on the other hand. And so the question then becomes, we can figure out how to do the furnace thing with electricity with enough, with enough, uh, you know, cleverness, but, but this chemical process, how do we get around that? How do we, so the question then becomes in cement, is there a way to get lime, which is a key ingredient in cement without this super hot, extremely polluting process? Is there another way to get Lime, and so what this company I was interviewing is doing is they've basically figured out a, a, a room temperature chemical way of getting lime that doesn't require the high heat. So if you can, so, so their whole process to make cement doesn't require high heat at any stage. So they have, have have eliminated the furnace problem and they've eliminated the chemical reaction problem. So they are, as far as I know, uh, one of a tiny handful of, of companies that is offering truly zero carbon yeah. cement, cement that doesn't involve carbon anywhere in the process. It's still pretty nascent. And of course, for any of these startups, you know, like I have to, I have to say this over and over again on my pod for any of these little startups, it's a long and difficult road. Even if the technology is wonderful, it's just, succeeding in business is, is difficult. Yeah. Executing is difficult. So any one of these companies I talk to could and likely will fail, but like somebody's going to take, somebody's going to take that process, I think, 
and scale it. Somebody's going to make it work. Cement is the second most used substance in the world after water. Yeah. So cracking the cement code, solving cement is a very, very, very big deal. Um, when you're listening to somebody who like, uh, and I've looked at the company and it looks amazing as well too, but when you look at, uh, when you hear a solution that seems like win-win, win-win, <laughs> are you kind of going, is this magic? Is, is, is there something <laughs> like... Or in general, because you know what the law of an unintended consequences, basically this requires, this looks okay, but it just requires the the nut of the baobab tree. Um, <laughs> or, you know, the way like when you want to fix uh, cow digestive methane, you know, seaweed might be the answer. And then suddenly there's no more seaweed left. Um, <laughs> yeah. Where do you, where do you put your skeptometer the the company have done the chemistry the battle is scaling up 15 20 years in this in this business are you just chewing on an old cigarette saying i've seen plenty of you people before (laughs) (laughs) i've seen startups you people wouldn't believe yeah i mean a little bit yeah i've seen a lot of things come and go that seemed like they were the next big thing and then sort of vanished (laughs) and and, and i'm always vaguely thinking what happened to that so so yeah i mean one thing i've learned if i could distill it to a lesson is that the scientific challenges of decarbonization are much less daunting than i thought just because we're really good at science we're really human beings are very very clever this is this is the joy of my podcast is like there are just clever people out there doing clever things and they can f- overcome these problems. The problems that are, what makes this difficult is the social and political stuff yeah. and, the, and, and the economic stuff. I mean, just persuading small C conservative industries to change their ways, even if there's a tangibly better way of doing things, there's just a lot of um, uh, momentum. You know, there's a lot of inertia, yeah. There's a lot of path dependence and, the, and and just the quirks of the business world and just so all that. So uh, all of which is just to say, like, I'm less skeptical about the science of these things that I that I talk to. Like, it's clear these people have worked out the chemistry and they are producing cement that is going into buildings like the product works. But that's just the first of many, 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 many steps. Uh, and it's the other steps that are more difficult. It's it's persuasion it's scaling it's sourcing it's building manufacturing plants that can manufacture things at quality at scale that's a huge like that's a a huge super difficult problem of its own for any product just how do you go from our prototype that we made in our lab which works to making a hundred thousand of these that well like that is huge and very difficult. And a lot of companies founder on that, on that, you know, so, so my skepticism is, is always high just because most good things are crushed in the crib. Most good things die. Uh, and, 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 you know, bad people prosper, et cetera. But like scientifically, no, scientifically, the discoveries are just always, always delightful. It's all, it's the rest of the stuff after the science where, where things get, where things die. Just picking up on that and, and it lead into another um, episode that I was interested in as well, too. Is it something that we need to do as let's let's when I say we the group, you know, the, the large group of people who think that basically some sort of energy transition is broadly speaking a good idea. But one thing I know I'm guilty of is 
not wanting to, when you think you've fixed some area, not wanting to peek under the covers and mm-hmm. acknowledge problems. So, so when I'm done some stupid rabbit hole in on Facebook and somebody's posted some something about batteries and oh, yeah. you know and all this kind of thing. I figured this is where we were going. Yeah, and I'm like, oh, I don't like that person. Therefore, I don't want to hear anything against batteries. <laughs> Look, electrification and whatever storage we have, it's our only hope. Stop rocking the boat and splitting the boat. <laughs> Sh- shut up about batteries. But, you know, we have to confront the by- the byproducts of everything in this change. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and again, you know, I hadn't thought about what happens to all the old batteries but, but again, you ask the question and you find out again, science might have an answer involving <laughs> some chemistry. Do you find that you kind of like, oh, I guess I'm going to have to ask about batteries this week? <laughs> you know? uh, I, I mean, yes, anything we do industrially at scale is going to involve supply issues, finding the materials with which to do it. And it's going to involve waste issues, i.e. what do you do when you're done with it? And that is true for clean technology, just like it's true for the carbon. There's no, it shouldn't be any surprise. It's tricky out there because there's just a lot of bad faith misinformation out there. There's a very well-funded, deliberate effort on the part of certain parties to spread misinformation deliberately to slow this thing down. So the trick is taking the real problem seriously while not getting caught up in bad faith BS. And that's just yeah. just the problem of being online today. I yes, mean, I know. Yeah. It's just the problem of living uh, in today's world. And it's true here too. So there are, I, I, would, I would preface all this with the big picture. And I always have to say this before I start talking about materials issues. There is no calculation of an electrified world, no matter how pessimistic your assumptions, where the material throughput and the environmental damage is anywhere close to what is actually happening today all around us. Right. The fossil fuel economy. Because the thing is, like, you have to dig up a bunch of materials to make the battery, but then once the battery is made, it just sits there being a battery. Whereas if you build a natural gas power plant, you got to keep putting natural gas in it every day, which means you got to keep digging natural gas up every day, day after day after day after day. So the, the, the environmental damage that the production and burning of fossil fuels is doing dwarfs anything we can imagine an electrified world doing that's just that's the preface so like yeah no matter and, and how ste- and stepping back where you burn like is is always going to be a fundamentally destructive we're yeah we're yeah, yeah we're trying not to burn uh, anything what's the anymore word? yeah yeah <laughs> we're, like you we're, we're trying to get away from burning that's that's yeah the, we're trying to get away from the world of fire that's the that's kind of yeah. the, the there's very good to, there's very few good burn Yes, like, it's not. You cannot burn. I mean, th- this uh, th- and there's a lot of hype around. Oh, we're going to burn it and release all the gases. Then we're going to capture all the gases and bury all the gases. Just like, guys, we're just 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 not burn it in the first place. That's always yeah. it's always better just to not burn in the first place. So that's the that's the big picture. So yeah, there are materials that go into batteries and solar panels and and all this electrified stuff. Think lithium, nickel, copper, things like this. Where if we transition the whole economy to an electrified economy, 
yes, we are going to spike demand for those materials. And right now, there's not enough supply to meet that envisioned future demand. So supply is going to have to ramp up really quickly. And mining, as I'm sure you're aware and your listeners are aware, mining is very often ugly. And it's very often done in unjust ways like um you know a lot of a lot of um mining involves these sort of small holders in like the republic of congo they're using child labor like there's the, the mining sector is pretty nasty so we are so we do need to think about a how to mine in the most just and and lightest footprint way possible and a lot of people are thinking about that two how to use you know, how to be efficient, how to use as little of these materials as possible and get what we need out of them. So there's a lot of design issues and there's a lot of, you know, like we'll need fewer car batteries if we build more walkable communities served by public transit, you know? So there's a lot of ways you can sort of minimize the, the materials you need at the outcome. And then you have to think about what do you do with that battery when it's dead? So all, all of those are legitimate areas of concern and there are hordes of clever people <laughs> yeah. beavering away on all sides on all sides of that problem i had a guy on my pod a few weeks ago that's that's working on the mining side he's using ai to sort of um do pre-analysis so that there's much less exploration required to find deposits of these things so you just reduce the footprint of mining that way so there's a lot of people working on that there's a lot of people working on well if X material is nasty. How can we make batteries not using that material? So for instance, you're seeing um, cobalt, which is one of the nastiest chemicals. The newest generation of batteries just don't use cobalt. They've, they've, yeah. they've evolved out of cobalt. So that's another way to deal with it. And then on the back end, you have um, disposal. What do you do when the batteries dead? I mean, one thing you can do, you can take the battery when it's you know it's, when it's down to about 80%, it's no longer useful for a vehicle but there's still life in it. So there's a lot of talk about taking all those batteries out of cars and doing what's called a second life. You know, you can sort of just rack them up into a big rack and use them to store energy on, on the grid until they're, until they're, you know, dead, dead. Like you can just yeah. drain them all the way with that. But then once they're fully dead, then you've got um, this box full of, valuable materials that you don't want to release into into landfills so how do you get the materials back out and that's what the pod you're you're referring to is about is recycling of batteries and right now it's not right now it's not a huge problem because we haven't seen a really big wave of dead batteries yet because the whole kind of the whole ev sector the whole electric vehicle sector is kind of just ramping up everything's just ramping up. We're on the front of what are called S curves. You know, we're just about mm. to like head into the near vertical <laughs> adoption, uh, a curve of these, of these technologies. Uh, so we haven't gotten a really huge wave of dead batteries yet. So we need to prepare for when it comes. And right now there's, you know, there's different ways of recycling batteries. The main, I think default way is called pyrolysis, which is just burning them, which to re to refer back to our previous conversation uh, is nasty and you'd like to avoid burning if you could. So yeah. then there's an alternative called hydrolysis, which just 
shreds the batteries and then soaks the, the, the black mass. That's what they call after they shred it. It's just this goop, this black mass. They soak it in liquids. The phrase um, black mass is likely to inflame anyone who sees everything as the green conspiracy being a front for Satanism, but we let that slide. (laughs) That's our little black mass. It's, uh, it's, It's shredded batteries. And hydrolysis also requires a lot of chemical inputs and produces a lot of chemical outputs that are not pleasant to deal with and produces some CO2 emissions. So this guy I had on my on my pod had developed a new way and this is key and this is a theme that comes up in my pod over and over again is he's figured out a way to use electricity to do a lot of the work that fire and chemicals used to be doing and yeah. that is a theme is we have this now clean electricity that's super cheap so over and over again in sector after sector you're seeing people figure out well how can we do what we do in this sector with that abundant, cheap, clean electricity. And and so there's just a lot of thought in every sector about how to do that. So this guy's figured out this sort of electrochemical process where basically he can plate these metals. These He can literally pull atoms of these metals out of this, of this fluid and they attach to a plate. So he can, so they're, the, the process they've, they've developed can recover almost all of almost all the relevant chemicals. So lithium, copper, cobalt, Etc. So, and and then they have relatively benign uh, waste after that. So, this is yet another sector where they've figured out how to use clean electricity to do something that used to require fire or or a bunch of toxic chemicals. They've replaced those fi- that fire and toxic chemicals with clean electricity, and so now can recycle batteries, re- recover almost everything with a very low waste process. Right now. It's complicated. It's prototype stage. It's expensive. Again, to, to return to a previous theme, there's a long road yeah. to scaling that up and making it work at, at at big scale. But they've got a little time before the wave of batteries arrives. So, so I think we are, in the end, going to be able to figure out how to recycle solar panels and batteries and the like relatively benignly. Yeah. I, listening to that and, and indeed listening to the podcast themselves, I just have this huge regret that i hadn't fallen in love with chemistry and the, <laughs> like like the power of all these covalent bonds and these yeah there's a lot of each breaking, other and there's a lot of breaking molecules apart and reattaching yeah. them together yeah well let me tell you i got a philosophy degree so it's a it's a constant scramble for me too to- yeah it, but it's um because i suppose perhaps not putting words in your mouth but maybe the reason you're not skeptical about the science is that it is Lego. Like the whole thing is Lego. Like we've been yeah. doing a particular type of Lego for years, obviously smashing bricks and then throwing the broken bricks into into the water or into the earth. But ultimately, all of these elements can be rejigged around. I mean, within reason. Um, and 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 also another another way to think about it is fossil fuels have been so dirt cheap for so long that there are a lot of processes that just, we just haven't thought about a lot. Like, no, we just haven't had a lot of people any reason to think about it a lot. So there's a lot of low hanging fruit here. Like, uh, like when I I was talking about how to get industrial heat, how to get super high heat, it turns out the way we've cracked that problem is you use renewable electricity to heat up some rocks and the rocks will just sit there and hold the heat. 
and then you can get super high heat out of those rocks. And like heating up rocks to hold energy is not rocket science. We've yeah. been doing that. We've been doing that literally since we were running around with like on, on the savannah. You know, it's like that yeah, might yeah. literally that might literally be literally the first energy technology. It's just we had a cheap source of high heat of high temperatures up until like five minutes ago. So just no one had occasion to think about it much. So there's a lot of low hanging fruit everywhere you look. Cause yeah. in a lot of these areas, it's just the first time we've thought about how to do it differently. And two, two analogies that spring to mind there. One is they used to burn natural gases and unwanted waste products before from oil wells, didn't they? Because <laughs> they still, they still do that. They still, it's called flaring. It's still yeah. done quite quite a bit all over the world that's a huge source of uh, pollution and and the other side of it is uh like innovation based on and it's not uh, based on the incumbent cheapness or in some cases free free supply like you could argue when people were enslaved that apart from the awfulness of it you it know makes you lazy it makes it makes you lazy and, and uh and 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 the industrial revolution is basically like when people started thinking about how to get lots more work out of, <laughs> you know, if you don't yeah. have access to slaves, how do you get lots more work uh, uh, done? And, and it, it caused a effusion of innovation that's shaping our world to this day. And, and, and what's going on right now, like people should be excited about it. What's going on right now is comparable to that. We are redoing our entire industrial system piece by piece by piece. And so anybody who's got a mind for building stuff or innovating stuff or got a mind for science. Like there's so much work to be done here. And like I said, there's low hanging fruit to be found. So you can make a real impact in this area just by finding one of those pieces of the puzzle that nobody's on yet and, 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 and figuring it out. You know, there's tons of pieces. Coming up in part two, is there any going back? Is this an unstoppable juggernaut? Is the genie out of the bottle when you look at it in terms of so science is telling us a way and you're positive about science and then you're, I suppose, skeptical about maybe people's inertia or vested interests or politics. political uh, politics and uh, just shit happening. But <laughs> but is this like, is it is it impossible to unknow what we know, and then and therefore it's inexorable. Now, whether yes. what what should happen happens in inverted commas in time, and we'll get to that in a while because I wanted to ask you about net zero. Whether that let's leave that out of it. Let's leave deadlines out of it. But is this a remorseless, unstoppable march yes. in a yes. particular direction? Emphatically, yes. And, and and for a couple of reasons, I mean, I would encourage everybody, uh, this, this, this a friend of mine, uh, uh, an energy analyst named Nat Bullard, every year, once a year, he comes out with this sort of magnificent slideshow. This year it has 200 slides in it, but it's basically just like, here's a broad overview of how the energy transition is going. And you flip through those slides and what you see is lines going up and to the right. <laughs> over and over and over, like sharply up and to the right. That's EVs, that's you know electrified furnaces, that's um, you know, heat pumps, just you name it, just all the technologies of electrification, all these things, these things are out. These things are, are, are thundering into the S curve of exponential 
adoption already. Yeah. That's happening now, and you cannot reverse that. And here's why. If it was just concern about climate change driving all this, I would be much, much less sanguine. But it turns out that running things on clean electricity is better. It is better. It is cheaper and it is more fun to use. It is more effective. It's just better. It's a better world. It would be worth doing even if there were no climate change, just because like, and, and, and I think the example everybody or, or a lot of people can, can see this through is anybody who's driven an electric car, right? If, you, if you're used to driving gas cars and you drive an electric car, it's just better. It's more fun. It's got more torque, right? It's just more fun to drive and more, um, you feel safer and more in control and there's more you know there's a lot more technology you can put in it's just better and it's yeah. and it's the same for heating your home like i think we are really close to a time when we're going to look back our kids are going to look back and think you used to heat your home by lighting a poisonous gas on fire in the closet in, <laughs> right next to you like that's going to seem absurd to them that we ever did that electricity is just safer it's not going to blow up right it's not going to explode it's much more gentle it's much and and, and now it's much cheaper because uh, wind and solar has just been getting cheaper and cheaper and cheaper yeah. and cheaper so all of which is just to say like this transition would be underway and inevitable on some time scale even if there were no such thing as climate change given the urgency of climate change and all the policy and energy that's going into accelerating it, yeah, it's just unstoppable. The all, the big, the question is just timing, right? Because we've faffed about for so long and put this off so long and delayed so long that we're just under intense time constraints. And 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 you know anybody who's ever watched social or political processes work know that if you try to do big change quickly, yeah, there's going to be weird friction and weird unexpected outcomes right and weird and weird yeah. problems that pop up that you never could have anticipated or things are going to interact with other things in ways you couldn't have really predicted like yeah there's going to be a lot of chaos because we 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 put it off for too long so now we have to do it quickly and doing anything quickly is going to be a little bit chaotic we're just going to have to put up with a lot of that and is having to do it quickly going to mean it happens more slowly if you know what i mean like like because obviously we have we in order to bring people on board when you make a change like this you you need slogans and you need deadlines and there's a lot of talk about net zero by 2050 and that's obviously informed by you know the level of carbon in the atmosphere is 400 and something and it needs to come back down because mm -hmm. the models presumably at some point are saying if we have any hope of restricting temperature rise. We need to reduce the amount of untrammeled energy that's in the atmosphere, shit that got burnt. <laughs> so, you know, that feeds back to some numbers and some deadlines. But but because they have to be passed around and, you know, have to be translation neutral and spoken and, and being um, talked by everybody, Nobody really knows what they mean. Like, I don't know what net zero means mm -hmm. as a like zero based on what. And, you know, is there a is it net zero standing on top of a thing? Again, it's an uncomfortable question. I, I guess we should ask before we go very much further. Is it really zero? Does it need to be zero? 
Yeah. Is it is it this better is, that we just go look just make it good <laughs> and we're not worry about the not worry about the levels because because it becomes a rallying cry for doing nothing. Uh, when you hear conversations and you hear just net zero just cropping up on some company's brochure, you know, next to a photograph of windmills <laughs> and a child playing with a ball in the park <laughs> flower you know, in the fi- a flower in the field yeah um clouds scudding across the sky <laughs> in the corporate video like is, is there necessary bullshit needed to get people across a level or is it actually counterproductive when it comes to talking about this yeah this is a little bit controversial in my field but i would classify it as necessary bullshit uh, um i i don't think it's i mean i think there's a lot in there there's a lot packed in there there's a lot of room in there for shenanigans absolutely and a lot of shenanigans are underway <laughs> but but on the other hand i think you have to have you have to have some endpoint some goal something to rally around and i think just the fact that net zero has caught on and like yeah. caught on people's imagination and is like is is rallying people is serving as an organizing principle is is more good than bad despite the fact that yes there is a lot of you can pack a lot of bs into it so what net zero means is not like the place to start is all of climate science strip away all the complication basically what they found is if you want the temperature to stop going up you have to stop adding greenhouse gases to the atmosphere period full stop that means not adding any more greenhouse gases to the atmosphere so you could say, so we need to get to zero emissions of greenhouse gases. But then you run into a problem of there are some sources of greenhouse gases that we just don't know how to eliminate. There are things in like agriculture, in land use, like there's some residual greenhouse gas emissions that no one can imagine how to get rid of. So then we come to, well, what if we buried some greenhouse gas emissions what if we buried as many greenhouse gases as we are emitting right then you that's what net zero means so from the atmosphere's point of view you're not emitting any more greenhouse gases on net because you're burying as much as you're emitting so you're netting out at zero which fine but where the shenanigans come in is once you've opened up this idea that you can emit some and then just bury some to compensate for it, then you get lots of people who are in the business of emitting thinking, oh, nifty, we can keep doing what we're doing and we'll just bury a bunch of greenhouse gases to compensate for it. This is much easier than than zero, right? So that's where the shenanigans come in is that oil and gas, they want you to think that we can keep going roughly the way we're going and then just bury a bunch more and we'll all and we'll net out to zero and everything will be fine and, and suddenly is, you it, have it, um you've a lot of fat friars selling indulgences walking from <laughs> village to village yeah i mean the main thing to keep in mind i think and this is obvious to anyone who has an even glancing familiarity with the numbers is There is no prospect, zero underlined twice, no prospect of us burying enough carbon to compensate for the amount we currently 
are emitting or anywhere close to it. Like even if we eliminate emissions from electricity, from transportation, from heating and cooling, even if you get all the way down to only residual emissions that are difficult to get rid of, like maybe a couple of industrial processes, maybe some agriculture, some land use, stuff like that, even that residual amount of greenhouse gas emissions, even that amount is going to be difficult to offset with burying. Even that amount is going to be, even that amount, we're going to have to bury a huge mind-boggling amount to compensate just for that. So the idea that we can compensate for today's emissions with burial is absolutely ludicrous. And that's, that's where the net zero gets into BS is when oil and gas companies use it as a flag to sort of justify the status quo. We're going to have to almost eliminate fossil fuels, even under the best assumptions of burying carbon we're going to have to basically eliminate the use of fossil fuels still like, because as, as you say, even if we could reduce emissions to absolute zero tomorrow, the atmosphere already has too much carbon in it to be safe. Right? So we need to draw down the amount of carbon in the atmosphere, not just stop adding, but start drawing down. And that's going to also going to require burial. So if we're burying to compensate for ongoing emissions, we're not making progress on that are we? Because we got, we got to draw down the absolute amount. So all of which is just to say, even if you accept net zero as the goal, it still involves massive, rapid industrial revolution that will mostly eliminate fossil fuels. There's no way around that. If you want the temperature to stop going up, we're going to have to get off of fossil fuels. And any oil and gas company that tries to tell you otherwise is, is talking its book. And have we ever done this before? Have we ever reorientated a planet (laughs) in so short space of time in the absence of a global war? I mean, this is there's a there's a scholar named Vaclav Smil. I don't know if you've if you've heard of him. He's pretty famous in energy circles. He's an energy scholar, but he's kind of become like the cranky old man of energy now. And he, because he's a historian and he's written about previous energy transitions, you know, like off of whale oil onto, onto whatever, off of, off of uh, whale oil onto coal, off of coal, coal onto gas. And he sort of has charted these energy transitions in the past. And the point he keeps making is they don't happen fast. (laughs) They are, they are slow and difficult. And he thinks all this talk about net zero by 2050 is just a bunch of crazy kids who are on his lawn and he's irritated about the whole thing. So, but I think there are reasons to believe that this one can, should, and will proceed much, much faster than previous ones for the one, for the one thing we've never done any of the previous ones on purpose, really. Like they just happen. So, so all of the world is fixated on this problem and trying very hard. And that alone is a new Thing in the world, and they, like, they, they happen as before. well. Sorry, to, a lot of them they, they happen because of invasion and extinction. Yeah. You know, they yeah like exogenous events. Yeah, they, were, they were forced on. Uh, they were forced yeah. on on people, and people were yeah. Like so the, the injection of free stuff into the into a closed system in the past has been brutal. Like yes. free free yes, and um, and, 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 and of, silver or free labor or yeah, yeah. free guano or whatever. A lot of people are th- putting a lot of thought into how we can do this one 
with less of that yeah. brutality. <laughs> a lot it's, of people are thinking a lot, a lot about that, but we, yeah. but, but the point is we've never done one on purpose. So that alone yeah. is like an accelerant. And also the, the other point I would make about this, which I think Smeal misses is this one is not necessarily one physical product to another physical product. A lot of what we're doing in this energy transition is not just um, electrifying, but digitizing. We have available now computing power that is enormous and absolutely a new thing in the world, a new thing in energy transitions. So a lot of what we're doing is just using intelligence, using computing power to substitute for material. You just do something more intelligently, <laughs> you need less stuff yeah. to do it with. And so a lot of a lot of what I cover on my pod is people figuring out clever ways of basically substituting computing power for materials and that you can do very quickly because computing power unlike physical stuff evolves and grows and gets stronger very 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 quickly it's not constrained by 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 material stuff so so insofar as we are digitizing i think that is hugely faster than previous energy transitions so i think there's there's We've never done anything this big, this fast in history ever, humanity. This is the biggest thing we've ever tried to do faster than we've ever tried to do anything else. I mean, and, and even global coordination on a global problem alone is like a relatively new thing in the world, right? So this is all new. So nobody, so anybody who tries to predict what we can and can't do or what will and won't happen with any confidence is, is bullshitting. Like no one knows there are so many unknowns here, but I think there are reasons to believe it is possible to do this quickly. Do you have a favorite? Oh, I didn't know that moment from a three years of listening to very clever people reveal what they've been up to. A couple of things, like I told you about the heat batteries. I have been accustomed to storing electricity in batteries, which involves quite a bit of loss, right? So yeah. the, the the amount of energy you get out of a lithium ion battery is less than what you put in because of the chemical conversions. You're always losing some energy. What I didn't really realize is if you put the electricity into a big rock as heat, <laughs> yeah. as heat, and then you use it as heat, that's like a 98% efficient uh, process. Like getting yeah. the heat out of the battery to where it's used, you lose almost nothing. So storing electricity as heat is incredible. And then using it as heat is incredibly So these are efficient. Stone, stone batteries. Yeah, well, they're, yeah, they're just big rocks. I mean, <clears throat> well, uh, you know, there's, there's, I sh I'm exaggerating a little bit. There is some material science in how you arrange them and how you design them, but basically, they really are just made of rock, like abundant, easy, cheap material. There's, there's a couple of companies that are using big blocks of graphite, which are again an existing, very common, uncomplicated industrial product that you can get anywhere. It turns out they are heating up graphite so hot that it glows like the sun and the energy you get out of it comes out as light rather than heat. Like after you exceed a certain temperature, this is an aha I had that yeah, kind of blew yeah. my mind. If you exceed a certain temperature, the, the, the energy comes out as light rather than heat. So what they do is I just talked to a company a few weeks ago that heats up blocks of graphite until they're glowing 
and then uses these special photovoltaic cells to get that light and trans and, and, and make that into electricity. So they are they are doing electricity storage with <laughs> very low losses by by basically it, they call it the sun in a box. They yeah. just have an insulated box with this chunk of graphite in it that is so hot that it is glowing like the sun. It is absolutely wild. That sounds so, like uh, some sort of uh, weird thing where you're like you want to you want your solar panels to work at night so you shine a torch at them (laughs) (laughs) another cool aha that a lot of people are not hip to yet which is one of the most exciting areas of development i think happening right now so people are familiar maybe with geothermal power so geothermal power is very old you just basically have to go to places where there's weird sort of plate tectonic activity a little bit below the surface there's some grinding that creates these areas of natural heat and then you just pump water down into that heat the heat heats up the water and then you get the heat out of the water and make electricity out of it that's geothermal power it's been around for a century but the problem with that is you're confined to areas with these natural features and that's and that's relatively restricted geographies there's a lot in iceland famously there's a lot in the in the northwest of the us but it's not but those natural features are not ubiquitous enough to make existing geothermal into sort of a global player. But recently, very recently, like ongoing now, you know, so there's been a revolution in natural gas and oil production around fracking. So that's two things. One, that's going down and and pressure, shoving fluid down underground at such high pressure that it fractures the rock and releases the fluids in the rock. And then the other innovation is lateral drilling. So instead of just going down, you can go down and then go out really far in several directions, which just vastly increases the area you're covering. That's fracking. That's why natural gas fracked natural gas has taken off in the u.s in the last several decades is because of those two um innovations in drilling basically so this guy uh um tim latimer the ceo of a company called fervo he uh was working with fracking and he's like maybe we could figure out how to trans translate this into geothermal so now he's got a company called fervo that literally just like a week or two ago opened up its first working plant google is google is funding it so they're using fracking they're going they drill down they push water down they fracture the rock that creates that grinding and that heat that you need for geothermal and then they use lateral drilling to go harvest as much of that heat as possible so basically instead of relying on natural geothermal features you can create one almost anywhere you can create geothermal power almost anywhere and then that turns out to be renewable always running very steady relatively cheap you can um you can you can use it to ramp you can use it to store energy it turns out enhanced geothermal is what they call this when you sort of use fracking to make your own geothermal it turns out to be like a Swiss army knife that does all kinds of things we need for the electricity system. And that's literally just the first plant, the first production commercial production facility using that technology opened literally just like a, a, a few weeks ago, months ago, I think uh, a, a, it was a big Google press release about it. Okay. So you're, you obviously need electricity to pump the water, a little power to pump the water, yeah. but, but, but relatively 
relatively little. You need to you need to pump the water down at high pressure. So that 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 requires some energy, but there's so much heat released down there. And of course, um, you know, there's there's all this thinking going into drilling now because the deeper you can get, the hotter Okay. It is. And and so there's a lot of people now looking into what are called like super deep geothermal, where you go down like a couple of miles where you get super, super high temperatures. And when you get into those super high temperatures, you get much more efficiency. You get much more power out of the heat. The whole area of geothermal is like something that a lot of people just don't even know about yeah. at all. Don't think about hardly at all, but it's going to it's going to come and be a dark horse, super interesting, big contributor I think. And there's just like tech innovation going on in that area. So that would be an example where, let's say you don't like the concept of fracking, but fracking exists anyway. And so you take a thing that's you definitely don't like and you make it into something you like a little bit more, well, if you know what I mean, it's, because it's, you, it's you take the gas out of it. Yeah, it's yeah. important to emphasize that the, that the nasty part of natural gas fracking is in these weird toxic fluids they use to break open the rock. Yeah. Ge enhanced geothermal does not use so it's all water contamination. That's the big problem yeah. with fracking. Enhanced geothermal just uses basically water to yeah. do that. So all the all the environmental problems that are associated with fracking okay. do not do not apply here. That's worth that's worth saying. But yeah. but the technology behind fracking is really brilliant. Like the oil and gas engineers are super smart this is an area where you're using technology that used to be used for something bad and evil yeah. and using it for something good and interestingly you're using the same skills so you're seeing a lot of personnel yeah. from oil and gas finally have kind of this gives them an exit strategy right it gives them somewhere to go where they can do good because like going from oil and gas to solar pv is just like a totally different yeah thing it doesn't really translate but this is like oh drilling we know drilling we're all we, we we are very good at drilling and if there's a way to get renewable energy through drilling that gives oil and gas people somewhere to go and 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 i've and i know of a lot of them who are kind of hurting in that direction yeah so on friday they walk out the door with their uh oil Fossil fuel insignia on their lapel. <laughs> walk in, off. Walk into the same office on Monday. Then with a, a daisies all over their jackets. And let me tell you one more clever thing yeah, about, ge sure. about about geothermal because I visited Iceland this year. Just absolutely fascinating place to go for a million reasons. But they're very good at geothermal in Iceland because they've they're sitting on top of a giant fault. Like all of, all all of Iceland is just a giant. Yeah. You might have. You might have seen the news about a, a, a volcano there very recently. So they're very good at geothermal, but they have a company now. So, you know, in geothermal, you pump the water down, it, it gets hot, you bring it back up, you get the heat out of the water, and then you pump the water back down. It's a cycle, right? You're, start, yeah. you're cycling this water. So there's a company in, in Iceland that takes that water that they've gotten the heat out of, and they're about to pump it back down. But before they pump it back down, this company basically carbonizes it like you would like a physics uh, they fizz it like a soda stream yeah, yeah, yeah. basically they fizz it and then when the and then when you pump the water down the the co2 that's in the water reacts with the minerals in the this porous rock underneath iceland and mineralizes becomes rock basically <laughs> so you yeah. so then you're storing that co2 for centuries like centuries yeah. it is it is 
permanent irreversible carbon burial. Yeah. It's and, and so and so it's so clever that now they're talking about setting up a port on Iceland specifically designed for people to ship their CO2 to Iceland so they can visit and bury it. And it turned, uh-huh. and I asked the guy, I was like, how much room is there down there underneath Iceland for this? Like how much of this could you do? And he's like, there is enough space in the porous rock beneath Iceland to bury all of human carbon emissions many times over. <laughs> so, so yeah. I mean, this is plenty of problems left. Mainly, how do you get the CO2 to Iceland? Like that's, that's not yeah. a small, that's not a small problem, but just to say, it's, it's very clever. And yeah. it's again, and again, it's like, it's clever, but it's not, it's not like graduate level science. They're literally, they just fizz the water, yes. <laughs> they fizz the yeah. water and put it underground. It's, it's, it's really simple. It's just a matter of like thinking of things like that, you know, just, just cleverly trying to sort of tweak processes. So they work better. So geothermal and carbon burial are working together in Iceland in a fascinating way. We're, we can't be too far away from somebody just converting this stuff into cake, really. I mean, <laughs> is it cake yeah. or is it CO2? The Icelandics are enterprising enough to probably set up a lucrative enough soda stream operation <laughs> at the ports as well, too. If they're getting all this low cost carbon dioxide being shipped in, somebody else carrying that cost. OK, I, I feel like I've kept you for too long. I would talk for another hour. Just one last thing. What do you think you'll be talking to people about in three years time or what kind of conversations if you had to think, what do you think you'll be talking about in 2030? Say? Yeah, that is very interesting and very difficult to answer. <laughs> I, 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 I don't know. I, like, I think by 2030, electric vehicles will be dominant and electric charging will have caught up um, in, in, in the U S and Europe to where it already is in China. I think, um, most buildings will be heated by heat pumps, um, and electricity by then. So I think a lot of the, a lot of the kind of what they call the easy to solve, that's a little bit of a misnomer, but sort of the easier problems will be solved by then. So I think there'll be a lot more attention on industrial processes, figuring those out. Agriculture remains a big, looming, unsolved problem. Like, how do you create fertilizers, nitrogen fertilizers that don't create a bunch of greenhouse gases and fuck up the water, et cetera, Mm. et cetera. Um, And then a lot of you know, this is kind of a theme we've touched on a few times, but a lot of things that, you know, you can wrap your mind around at the startup scale, once they get to mass scale, once they scale up, just unanticipated things happen. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. like there's just going to be yeah. like social and political things like like the question of one, one of the big questions, one of the big things holding back uh, renewable energy now it's super cheap. The technology's dialed in, like it's all ready to go. There's just a lot of NIMBY resistance to... To building. So I'm curious, are we going to figure out, how are we going to figure out that problem? How are we going to figure out the problem of how do you get communities to embrace this Mm. stuff? And how do we do this stuff in a reasonably just way so that we don't, you know, screw over whole populations in our rush to change things? And and the whole question of, I mean, this has been a very US, I think, in Europe-centric discussion, and that's my blog is mostly focused on Europe. But really the big question on climate is, 
the non-US and Europe, non-China countries, the other, you know, the capital O other <laughs> countries, they're they're all growing, right? So will they get on a renewable energy path early on? Or are they going to build out a bunch of dirty fossil fuel infrastructure that then they have to go back? Yeah, they need heat and food. They do. They need a lot. They need a lot more, a lot more energy quickly. So what's probably the biggest, most important thing climate wise is getting intervening in those countries early and trying to get them on the path of renewable energy. So we don't have to do the build a bunch of fossil fuel infrastructure and then worry about how to mark it down, how to shut it down before it's useful life is over, who pays for, for decommissioned plants. Like there's a whole mess of problems that come with having a big fossil fuel infrastructure built that we're wrestling with in in the U S and Europe. And it would be nice if these developing countries could just skip that whole thing, skip that whole part. But, but the optimist in you would assume that again, they, they have actually more scientists by number than exist in this part of the world anyway um and and we've done a lot of work i mean in in the west uh, you know uh, i'll pat us on the back we've done a lot of work making these technologies much much cheaper which is you know our emissions in the u.s and europe really in the grand scheme of things are a relatively small piece of the puzzle but but so us eliminating our emissions is important but not going to solve the problem. What's going to solve the problem is making these technologies cheap enough that the developing countries use them. And that mm. I think we are well, well on the way. Like solar power is just, it is the cheapest source of energy ever available to human beings. That's a mind blowing fact that yeah. a lot of people just have not internalized yet i think people still have in their mind that like we're trying to get people to take their medicine here or we're trying to get people to do something that's more expensive for goo goo reasons that's not what's going on anymore solar solar is cheaper if you just make it so that they can develop solar if you give them access to enough solar panels and make their grid robust enough that they can absorb solar they'll use solar just because it's cheap uh, so instead of making them take their medicine, they just send them out into the sunlight and get the vitamin D for free. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. exactly. Exactly. Okay. Uh, what What's the next episode about? Where are you Where are you off to next? Metaphorically or physically? Um, metaphorically, I am uh, recording a pod next week that I've been putting off for a very long time, which is I'm finally getting into nuclear power. I'm okay. s- squarely addressing nuclear power with um jigger shah who is the the head of the loan programs office here in the in the u.s he's a super smart energy guy used to host an energy podcast before he went into the administration and he knows as much about this as anybody so everybody has questions about nuclear there's a lot of weird and weirdly intense opinions about nuclear floating around uh places so i'm going to try to untangle that you know wish me wish me luck you'll be wrong no matter what you do any whatever (laughs) i'm 100 certain i will get yelled at about that episode no matter what it contains that was david roberts there check out his podcast volts and another shout out for vatslav smil that's two in two weeks so it sounds like a book you should read that's it from the function room for this week as ever share like review check out colinmoregan.com for my live comedy shows or just to get in touch goodbye